Father, what a great and glorious God you are. We are overwhelmed by your goodness. God, we are overwhelmed by what you do in our lives and the way that you make yourself present in our lives, even in our darkest moments. Even when it seems like things couldn't get any worse, we just see your presence there. Lord, as we look around, we see so many things that are distracting us from the reality of the fact that you are here. You are right among, among us, Lord. And I just pray that today that we would be able to see you in every single circumstance in our life. That as we study this book, Lord, as we study what you have said to us, that it would be so real to us every single day of our life. Lord, that it would not be something that is just real to us on Sundays, but God, but it is real to us every single day of our life. Lord, we desperately need you to speak to us. God, and I pray that we would listen closely to your voice, that your Holy Spirit, Spirit would speak truth to us through your word, and that, God, your glory would be revealed. God, as you have given us these pages that are life-giving, God, we are so thankful for it. We ask that you just, just be in our presence right now. As we study your word, as we look at what you have said to us, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in a weird study. Welcome to Simple Church. Study in Ecclesiastes. Um, not often covered in church, but that's okay. Um, let me warn you, if, if you are like new to being a Christian, if you are not a Christian and you are just trying to figure this thing out, be careful if you read Ecclesiastes because it can be very confusing to you. It can be overwhelming to you. It'll, there may be some things in here where you go, well, that doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. That's the reality of Ecclesiastes. I want you to know that going into it. We've been talking about it. And we've been talking about this guy named Solomon. God has given him wisdom. And uh, he, I mean, he, you have to understand that Israel is, is like, I mean, they're, they're just... Uh, they're the nation that, that is under Solomon's control right now, and Solomon is, is just trying to pour his wisdom out on us through this word. And I just want you to recognize that, that Solomon has everything at his disposal. Anything that he thinks can make, make him happy, he goes on this, this journey, if you will, in Ecclesiastes to say, you know what, I've got everything at my disposal I am going to see what will make me happy. I will see if there's anything under the sun that will make me truly happy. And he spares no expense. We talked about how he has party after party after party, and he has just got everybody around him, and they're just having a good time. And he figures out even just the, the huge making life into a party even gets boring after a while. You even run out of things to party about, you know, like they, the parties keep getting bigger and you're like, what's the next biggest party going to be? And, and it just runs out of, of being entertaining. And all of a sudden he's like, it's just meaningless. And then what does he do? He also, he's, since he's got all kinds of financial resources, he goes and he's like, you know what? I'll build some stuff. I'll build some stuff and see if that will make me happy. He builds houses for his, his wives, which, by the way, he has 700 of them and 300 concubines. So there, uh, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Willie, for that commentary. Um, yeah, that, that's a lot, right? Okay, I probably should just leave that as that's a lot, all right? So he builds houses, and uh, 
I mean, just think about, you know, he's got all of these women that are his wives, everybody that looks the whole range of, of looks and shapes and sizes and hair colors and all of that, like 700 of them, 300 concubines, and even looks to that to make him happy and doesn't really make him happy. He says it's all meaningless. Now, as you're talking about the things that he builds, like when he builds a house or when he builds gardens, you know, he doesn't plant tulips in his backyard. He builds a forest. So like, you know, if you think, well, I'm going to go do what Solomon did. Uh, well, unless you're building Yellowstone, you're going to struggle to obtain the kind of level of, of planting and gardening that this dude did. So, I mean, he, it's just spare no expense doing whatever it takes to try to make himself happy, and he's trying to see if there's any way that he can, he can look at all the stuff around him and it will fi- he will find meaning in life as a result of what he is doing. He even gets to the point where he's like, I know what I will try, and I will try to make myself do nothing. Now, I like this attempt, okay? So I'm like, I, I kind of identify with this. I've got all these slaves. My slaves have slaves, and my slaves' slaves have slaves. You know, like, and, and I got people that will wash my feet, that will do my pedicures and my manicures. I'll get massage after massage after massage. And it's like, maybe if I just do nothing and I got everybody taking care of me, then maybe that will make me happy. Well, he does all this building. He's got all these slaves. He's doing all this stuff and nothing truly makes him happy. Nothing gives him meaning in his life. Now, if you were thinking in your mind, hey, I'm going to take the Solomon challenge I'm going to do what Solomon did. I'm going to get a whole bunch of wives, and I'm going to build some stuff, and I'm going to go start gardening, and I'm going to see if any of this stuff will make me happy. Let me tell you something. Uh, you are not Solomon, first of all. You do not have the wisdom of God in your back pocket. I'm just saying, like, like if you're thinking that that's what I'm going to try, I'm going to embark on this search for my own happiness, okay, Ecclesiastes has already been done, all right? So don't be thinking in your mind, I'm going to be Solomon for a day or two and see if I can make myself happy. I'm telling you that, that if we need to take the wisdom of God that's already here and we need to embrace it as opposed to trying this on our own, okay? So that's my little disclaimer for you. Anybody that was thinking about going on and embarking on this thing and trying to have big parties and all that, let me tell you, it's already been done. We've already got the answers here, so let's look and see what God has to say. All right, so if you know something about me and my family, you know that we like Disney, amen? Okay, so yeah, <laughs> And when I say we like Disney, we don't just like Disney. We like, like, like Disney and annual pass holders, all that whole thing. You know, we recently got annual passes, and, and that was like Cassie's birthday present was just to have annual passes to Disney World, okay? So, yeah, okay, judge me all you want to. That's fine. We really like Disney, okay? So I'm going to tell you about uh, just a couple of things that, that we have experienced at Disney and, and how we, you know, see it as the happiest place on earth, you know, because that's what they, they claim it to be. When I got to thinking about happiness, I couldn't help but to think about Disney, all right? I remember the first time I rode the Pandora ride. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Bear with me for just a second, okay? The Pandora ride is a brand new ride at Disney World, right? It, and it, it's this thing where you're like, it basically, because it's an immersive experience, you like, you're sitting on this thing and they've got a, these glasses on you and you're surrounded by this whole screen where you're just experiencing this different world, okay? And when I mean you're experiencing the different world, you got the, the wind blowing in your face. It's like you're riding on the back of this animal. You've got the smells coming at you. The visual pictures are just stunning that you're looking at. Like it looks like it's better than real life. You know, it's like better than HDTV. I don't know what Disney does that is so immersive in this experience, but it is like the first time I wrote it, I'm not, gonna, I'm not lying to you. The first time I wrote it, I cried. 
Okay, like that's how moving it was. I, I little tears just trickle out of my eyes. Like I cannot believe how amazing this is. Okay, so I, I, I admit that full on. I admit that. And 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 when we go back to Disney World, we stand in line for two or three hours or whatever it takes to ride the Pandora ride. This is not me giving a shameless plug to Disney and hoping they'll renew my annual pass. It's just me telling you what we experienced at Disney. Um, but one of the other things that, that happened recently is uh, for Cassidy's uh, 16th birthday, guess where she wanted to go? You'll never guess, right? Disney World, right. Okay, so she wanted to go to Disney World. We stayed at a Disney Resort, and I actually had, this time I had, uh, for her birthday, I had a package delivered to her. Um, it wasn't anything elaborate. It was like a picnic backpack thing. It had a, a blanket with her name embroidered on it and like some Disney snacks in there. And, and, but that's not the best part about it. So we're staying at our Disney resort and I've been trying to get things lined up so that it will come while she's there at our resort. Now we're in and out all the time and all this kind of stuff. I'm like calling people when trying to keep it a secret and all this kind of stuff. Well, we're, we just checked into our resort and we're sitting there and we're, we're trying to get ready to go out to the parks or whatever. And, and, and a lady knocks on the door, and she says, Princess Delivery. And my daughter about lost her mind. Cassidy, randomly today, she will just, she'll walk into the house and go, Princess Delivery, you know, just because. She said, I want to be that lady. Whoever that is, whatever, however she got that job, I want to be her. You know, like, that's what I want my career to be. I said, I don't know how much it pays, but she sure does enjoy her job, I'm sure. But she was like, Princess Delivery, I mean, she, just, she, she repeats that over and over sometimes. Princess Delivery, just because it makes her so happy. Um, I will tell you about one time where uh, I was not so happy at Disney, um, because this happens too. Uh, we were in uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios, right? And we had eaten, I think, and we had been on a ride. Well, I have allergies, but my allergies don't really make themselves apparent very often. I mean, sometimes I get headaches or sneezing or whatever, you know, like hay fever stuff like anybody else. But, but for whatever reason, I ate something at Disney World that made my lips swell. I mean, it was like, you know, my lips aren't exactly small to begin with, but I mean, when, when I said they, they were swollen, like <laughs> my mother-in-law looked at me and goes, ooh, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's not good. We need to take you to see somebody, to get something, because that ain't good, what you got going on right there. I, got, I go into the little infirmary nurse's station, whatever you want to call it there, at, 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 at Hollywood Studios, and even the look on the lady's face that was about to give me medication was like, oh, there's something wrong with you, son. <laughs> when your lips are so big that they notice right away that you've got a problem, that means your lips are pretty big. I'm just saying... So whatever, I looked at the lady and I was like, I need a Benadryl, you know. Um, <laughs> she was like, oh, yes, sir, you do. As a matter of fact, I had to little sign the little waiver thing and I got a couple of Benadryl and I was okay. But man, it was like, that was not one of my best experiences at Disney World. Um, but the reason I tell you all that is to kind of give you a prelude to what we're going in today. And that is that uh, this today is going to be heavy. I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's, it's, it's going to be heavy and it's going to be a struggle for me and it's probably going to be a struggle for some of you today. It's, it's just, it's going to be heavy and I'll go ahead and, and give you that disclaimer too that today's going to be kind of heavy because the thing about Disney World for me and my family is even though it's the happiest place on earth, it's the saddest place on earth at the same time. And Mary Beth Chapman talks about this in her book, Choosing to See. Um, they had a, a, 
a young daughter that uh, was killed by one of their sons accidentally. It happened in their driveway. He actually ran over her. And Disney World used to be the happiest place on earth for them. And then as they went back, they had to go back without her. And because they had to go back without her, it became kind of the saddest place on earth because they were missing her so much. And for me and my family, I really I identify with that too. Um, my oldest daughter, Kenneth, March 21st, which is just a few days away, um, she would have been 20 years old, right? Uh, I know you guys, I talk about my daughter a lot. I talk about Kenneth a lot. I talk about our struggles a lot. It's to help you understand not just how bad me and my family hurt as a result of having lost our daughter. I talk about her a lot so that you'll see the glory of God in her death. I, ha I have determined in my life that I will continue to proclaim how good God is, even in the midst of her death, even in the midst of everything that we struggled through and we saw. That is part of my testimony. That is part of who I am. That's what makes me who I am. And that is what drives me over and over again to tell you that God is good. God is good. And, and today we're going to look at Solomon and what he says about some of the stuff that he encountered because he comes to this struggle with death a little bit today. And we're going to look at what he says and we're going to look at how that relates to our lives and we're going to look at the glory of God even in our deepest, darkest, most hurtful moments. It's going to be heavy today. I'll go ahead and tell you, it's going to be heavy. I have, I will tell you, I have a migraine today, so I'm struggling a little bit to put all my thoughts together and uh, to speak clearly, but I pray that more than anything else today, you will see the glory of God through his word and maybe, just maybe, through my testimony of what I've, in, what I've been through in my life. Me and my family, what we've endured, what we've struggled with, and how we have saw how good God is, even in our deepest, darkest, most hurtful moments. So here, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, um, we've been looking at all this stuff that, 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 that Solomon has done and all the things that he's experienced and how he's tried to find meaning in his life. And he starts talking about his wisdom. In verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, it says this, So I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness. For who can do this better than I, the king? I know he sounds very arrogant sometimes, but the reality is what he speaks is truth, and he doesn't hold back truth. One of the things that I've told you that I will try to do during this series is try to be as transparent as I can. And I'm going to try to do that today as well. I thought wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise can see uh, where they are going, but the fools walk in dark, in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish have the same fate. Both will die. I told you before, it seems like Solomon has the gift of discouragement, does it not? Like here he's talking about wisdom. He's talking about wise people, foolish people. And he says, I came to the same conclusion that the end is the same for both. He says, both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? What's the purpose of having wisdom if I'm just going to end up like everybody else? If I'm going to end up like worm food like everybody else, what good does it do for me to have wisdom? Now, one thing we can see clearly is that we have this book where, where he is imparting wisdom to us. And how Solomon has been on this journey, and he is, he is sharing his wisdom to us. And, and that's one of the things that we definitely benefit from his life and his wisdom. But he says, this is all so meaningless. 
For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Let me ask you this question. How many people in this room could tell me the first name of their great-great-grandfather? Anybody? You might be able to tell me the name of your great-grandfather. Anybody could do that? I mean, think about it. Think about how, when you think about that, you're like, man, I'm just going to be forgotten, right? I'm not going to be remembered. I'm not going to, it's not going to, and my life is not going to mean anything. It's not going to last. You know, you start to, to see all the things that Solomon was seeing, and, and he's like, you know what? It's all meaningless. If you just look at the surface, if you just look at your life as it is right now and what you think that you are going to mean in 60 or 100 years from now, you say, man, wow, Kenny, that sounds so discouraging. Yeah, I'm going to die. Good. Thanks for pointing that out. I didn't know that. But the reality is, let me tell you this. We don't think enough about our own deaths. Some of us do, but probably not unless we've endured something that's caused us to, to be close to death. Maybe that's your own sickness, your own illness, your own struggle with your health. Something like that. Or maybe it's the, the, the sickness of a loved one, somebody you care about deeply, and you have seen death, and you have been close to it. You have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. You've been right there, and you have seen what it looks like for somebody to have to go through death. Now, one of the unfortunate things about ministry, but one of the most fortunate things about ministry is I'm around death a lot. I have been there when, when young uh, because of the things that me and my family have been through, uh, oftentimes people that have kids with cancer, they'll call on me to come and pray with the family or encourage the family or talk to the family because I've endured that. I've been there. I've struggled. I, I've, I've done all the things. I've been through all that they've been through. I know what it's like. And I even saw the end when my daughter passed away and I was right there at her bedside and I was praying to God, praising God for the glory of her life the, the, the fact that he loved her before I ever did. And I, I walked through those things in my own life. So oftentimes people will call me, hey, can you come? Can you pray with this family? Can you talk to this family? Because they're struggling. Their kid is on the very brink of death and they don't know what to think. And I've sat there and I, I've prayed with families. I've prayed with, with kids that didn't live to be much, much older than a few months older than they were when I last saw them. I mean, I've been there. I, I've looked death in the face. So, so often, you know, people call you in at the, the end of their life because they want you to encourage them. Maybe they've got a loved one that, that, that doesn't believe in Jesus, and they want you to give them one last shot to try to tell them what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus. And you, you go in on, on their deathbed, and you try to talk to them, and you try to say, look, this is the reality of what you're facing right now. And so often in ministry, you're there when people are on the very brink of death, and I've been there when, when other people have taken their last breath, not just young kids, but, but adults that have taken their last breath too. I, I mean, I, I've seen it. I've been up close and personal to it. And one of the things that I would say is that, that yes, it, it is difficult being there, but man, it also gives me a clear vision of the fact that I too will die one day. In case you haven't figured this out, you're gonna die one day. Young people, especially, you don't think about this, you're going to die one day. It's not as far off as you think. 
As you get older, you start to realize it's not as far off as you think. Jonathan Edwards actually said that, that he often thought about his own death, and that kept him healthy in his perspective of his own life and his relationship with God because he thought about how close he was to being face-to-face with God. I think that it is beneficial for us to pause for a moment and think about our own deaths. Because just like when somebody is on their deathbed and they're thinking about their death and it awakens them to the fact that they may or may not have a relationship with God and it's kind of this breaking point for them, I think that we too, if we will pause for a minute and we will really think about the fact that our lives are going to come to an end, we start to evaluate all those things in our life. What is really important in our lives? What is not so important in our lives? What should we be spending more of our time doing if our lives are so short? And here we see Solomon, he's kind of doing that, right? He's like, we're both going to die. Whether we're wise or foolish, we're going to die. And you think, man, that's very discouraging. It is discouraging, but it is encouraging at, at the same time. He says, I looked at the foolish people. I said, they're going to die. I looked at me, and I said, I'm going to die. And I, I've got the wisdom of God, and I, I'm like, I'm still going to die. What good is this going to do me? The same conclusion that he came to when he started looking at all the stuff that he had, all the wives and concubines that he had, all the money that he had, all the forests that he had built, all the houses that he had built, he started to say, man, what good is it? What is it gonna, what's going to benefit me if I'm, all just gonna, if I'm just going to die one day, if I'm just going to become worm food one day? So look at what he says. This, I, this is heavy. In verse 17 says, So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. He says, So I came to the point where I hated life. He's on this social experiment to figure out what life is all about and to find meaning. And he starts thinking about death, and all of a sudden he hates life. Some of you may be at this point right now. Some of you may be, maybe you have somebody that has recently died. Somebody that that was close to you, that you loved deeply, that you cared about. And maybe, even though in, in, in actual time terms, it has been a while, but as far as how it feels to you, it was like it was yesterday. You know what I'm talking about? It feels like it was yesterday when it happened. One of the things that, that, that is a struggle for me is uh, when March 21st rolls around, that's, that's Kenneth's birthday, you know? And, and she would have been 20 this year. She would have been 20 this year. And there are certain days where I, I understand that it's been a long time since she has passed away. It was back in 2000, March 24th of 2006 when she had her first surgery to remove her first brain tumor. There are some days that it feels like that was so far back in the past, but there are some days where it feels like that was yesterday. And I was right there holding her hand yesterday when she took her last breath. And if I'm perfectly transparent with you, if I'm, if I'm honest with you like I have to be, there was a point in my, in my life right after she passed away where I was jealous of everything, I was mad at everything, and, and truthfully, I was at this place where I hated life. I was like, what is the point? What are we doing here? 
All I got to do is struggle through the next 80 years of my life so that I can die to eventually go and be with her. I would rather just, just die right now so that I can go and be with her right now. That's me being transparent with you, and maybe a little too transparent, but I'm te- I want you to know that Kenny's a person that will tell you the truth. And I was at a point where I wasn't terribly fond of life either. And some of you may be going through not only just maybe, maybe the death of somebody you love or, or, or maybe your own health issues, but, but maybe as somebody that has disappeared from your life and it's like they're dead. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like that relationship has been so severed that it's like they aren't even the same person anymore. Like you don't even know them anymore. And, and like there's this huge separation and it's like they're dead. And maybe you hate life as a result of that. I want you to know if you feel like that and you're in that place, you're not alone. You're not alone. You hear me? You're not alone. You're not the only person that's ever felt that way. I know it hurts. I know it breaks your heart wide open. I've been there. I've walked through it. I know. You don't want to hate life, but you do. You know what I'm saying? And here, Solomon is just being so transparent with us. He said, I looked at the foolish people, the wise people. I looked at myself. I looked at everybody else and said, you know what? We're both going to die. It turns out he hated life when he actually just looked at it from that perspective. Look what he says. I came to hate all the hard work here on earth. For I must leave to others everything I had earned. So I'm working all of this time to earn something that is going to be in a 401k that I'm never going to use, you know? It's going to be inheritance I'm going to pass on to somebody else. And, and like, what is the purpose? What, what's going to happen with that? Now, for me in my life, to be perfectly transparent with you, I'm going to die with all my credit cards maxed out. You know? Like, <laughs> I've said that before, and I, I, I don't know if I mean it or not, but I kind of feel like that, you know? But here he says, I worked so hard. And I've earned all this, and like, what, what good is it going to do, man? I'm just going to die. He says, and who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Now, the person I'm leaving it to may be a doofus. You know what I mean? Like, this may be somebody that, that is foolish. I've earned all this. I've worked hard. I've had wisdom. I've, I've done everything to accumulate this wealth. And here, I might be leaving it to somebody who's foolish. Yet they will control everything I've gained uh, by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. He's like, all of this work to accumulate this wealth, to accumulate all these houses and gardens and beautiful things, and I may end up leaving it to somebody who is foolish. How meaningless is that? Some of you are thinking about who your inheritance may be left to, and maybe you're feeling the same way. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. He says, that wasn't going to help by thinking about all that I've accumulated and who it's going to be left to. That didn't, that didn't help me get past this, this hating of life that I had. So he goes on to say in verse 21, some people work wisely with knowledge and skill. Then they must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too 
is meaningless and a great tragedy. He's saying, I'm going to work all this time, accumulate all these things, do all this hard work to leave it to somebody who's lazy, who's not even going to work as hard as I have. Now, we've, we've probably seen this in our lives, right? You ever seen somebody that they got a great inheritance, yet they were a lazy bum, and they didn't really do anything with it except spend the inheritance that they had? You ever seen that? You ever, you ever, yeah, this is what Solomon's struggling with. He's like, I'm going to do all this stuff and accumulate all this wealth, and I'm going to leave it to somebody, and they're just going to squander it, and they're going to be lazy, and they aren't going to work hard, and they aren't going to exercise the wisdom that God has given them, and they're just going to do away with it all, and it's all going to be gone, and I'm going to be in the ground, and won't have any say in this. I mean, like, come on, Solomon, give us some good news, you know? Like, we need something to encourage us just a little bit. So what do people get in this life and all, for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. It's like, you struggle with this. You, you deal with this reality of what could possibly happen. You, you labor. And, and then what happens? You think that, that you could lay in bed at night and, and rest peacefully because I have labored and it's, it's been of some benefit. He says, no, no, I lay in bed at night and I'm awake because I'm thinking about these things. I'm thinking about the reality of the fact that I may leave it to somebody who's, who's going to squander it, who's not going to work hard, who's not going to exercise wisdom. He's like, life is just filled with pain and grief. It is all meaningless. We're going to get there. Just hang with me. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. Solomon's starting to turn a corner here in the wisdom he's trying to impart to us. So I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to those who please him. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a second. So we've talked about how Solomon recognized, in our, in our first sermon in the series, we talked about how, how Solomon recognized there is nothing under the sun that you can look and you can find happiness, true happiness and meaning in your life. There's nothing under the sun, but you have to look beyond the sun to the one who is beyond the sun. That you have to look beyond what you can see around you and you have to see God at work and God's hand in every single thing that's going on. And here, this is exactly the point that, that Solomon's trying to reinforce and trying to make again. He says, even when I eat and drink and, and I work hard, when I see God's hand in the middle of all that, I recognize that it's so much better. That that's where I can find meaning in every little thing that I do. That's where I can find the peace and, and, and that will sustain me. It's when I look and I see the hand of God in every single thing that I do. Now, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that, that when you say that, you're not just talking about those, those cute days at the Disney Resort where they're screaming Princess Delivery and knocking on your door. It's not just those days. Because we want to say, oh, I can see God at work and God's trying to give me pleasure and happiness and God is trying to show me how to have wisdom and all these things in those good days, right? Like that's really easy to see God's hand at work in the good days. 
Maybe it's when you're having a church picnic and everybody's hanging out and you're praying and, and you're, you're playing cornhole with your friends and, and like everything seems to be good. Like I can see God's hand at work in that. But listen to me. Listen to me. Nothing, nothing in those good days has ever shown me the goodness of God like when I held my daughter's hand and I could see her heartbeat diminishing on the monitor and I could see that her heartbeat was slowing down and when we spoke to her, we could see her heartbeat increase and then it would slow down again and we knew that she was dying. It wasn't just like I knew God was real. It was like I knew he was right there. He wasn't a distant God. He wasn't a God who didn't hear my prayers at that moment. He was real, and he was right there holding my hands because I know, I know if it had just been Kenny sitting there beside that bed, Kenny would have collapsed and been crushed, and, and like, like I would have just not been able to get up from the ground. God was right there. People say all the time, man, I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you did I don't know how you endured that. That would have crushed me. I wouldn't have been able to get up the next morning. All of those kinds of things. The only reason I could, the only reason I could get up the next day, the only reason that I could continue on, even in spite of the fact that sometimes I hated life, even in spite of some of the times I, I wished I was dead, the only reason I could get up is because I knew that God was real. He was so real to me. Nobody can convince me that he's not real. Nobody. And I will spend the rest of my life telling you how real and how good he is. Because I experienced God in that moment. And I could sense how real he was in that moment. And in the days to come, and people would look at me and say, man, I don't know how you do it. I said, I don't. I don't. It's not me. It's, it's not my life anymore. I realize what it means. I realize what it means for Christ to live in me, to have the thought that, that to, to die is gain. You know, I, I realize what it meant that, that his life is present in me. Man, I walked through those days, and I just, everything inside of me felt crushed, but everything inside of me felt that God was so real. I think that's what Solomon's trying to say. I think that that's what he's, he's trying to point out to us, the reality of who God is and the reality of, of the fact that even, even in your darkest moments, that's God showing you how real he is. That's God showing you the reality of the fact that he's there and that his hand is in the middle of it. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, I used to spend a lot of time with the, the chaplain at, at Children's Hospital. I used to spend a lot of time at night just talking to him because I really admired him for what he did and how he, uh, how he could do what he did, you know? How he could go in and, and, and see kids die all the time. I was like, how do you do that, man? he told me, he said, Kenny, he's a dear friend of mine. His name's Paul. He said, Kenny, 
He said, here's the thing. He said, I've seen some of the most tragic, terrible things that you can possibly imagine. I've had to intercede parents before they come into the ER to see that their child has been burned to death. He said, I've witnessed that. I've been there. And he said, listen, I'm telling you, it, as sure as I know anything, he said, in those moments, I thought, how in the world could God be in this? How in the world could God be a part of what is going on here? And he said, but God's there. He says, it's never in a way that I expect it to be. It's never in a way that I anticipated in my mind that God would show up and make his presence real to these people or to this situation. He said, but he's always there and he's always doing something that I never thought he could possibly do. And I said, that's it, man. That's it. That's exactly, that's exactly it. So uh, I told Paul in one of those late night moments, we we're sitting there, we we're just sharing our hearts and I would cry and he would cry and we just, we just talk, right? I told him, I said, Paul, you guys need to be there when they give parents bad news. When they have to tell the family that their child is gonna die, you guys need to be there. They need, they need that face of reassurance and you guys are that face. You're not God, you're not Jesus, but you are that face that represents hope. And I want you to know that. And he said, that's good advice, Kenny. That's really good advice. He said, it hasn't been our practice to do that. that it's normally the doctor and the nurse that's there and it hasn't been our practice to have a chaplain in there when we have to deliver bad news to the family. If you fast forward in uh, our lives, after Kenneth has went through... Uh, proton beam radiation treatment in Boston, Massachusetts. And we've gone through chemotherapy and, and we've had just the best physicians in the world looking at her case. I mean, I sought them out and I did everything I could to, so that they could see Kenneth's case and see if there's some way we could help her, right? And things were looking good. But we got, um, we got some bad scans and, and we got some things that didn't look right, and we kind of knew what was going on in the back of our minds. We kind of knew what was happening. You see, once our cancer came back, they had pretty much told us that that, that was going to seal the deal, that it was going to be over with. Once her cancer came back, the particular type of cancer she had, if it came back, it wasn't likely that she was going to survive. So we were hanging on this hope that it wasn't back, right? And we had one critical CT scan, and it was coming up, and, and we were nervous about that because we knew, man, this is it. This is life or death. This is, this is the big deal, right? So we got to go back to the doctor's office in the clinic, and, uh, and we got to get the results of that scan. And I knew that we were either going to get good news or we were going to get bad news when I walked in that door. And Kenneth didn't know what was going on. She was small. She was innocent. We weren't going to tell her all the details about what was happening. And uh, we walked through the door, and there's my doctor. There's her doctor. There's her nurse practitioner. And I looked to the left, and there's Paul. And I just started to cry. 
Because I knew why he was there. I knew he wasn't there because we were about to get good news. But you know what? You know what his face reminded me of? A conversation that we had late at night. We said, Kenny, even in the deepest, darkest, worst moments you could possibly imagine, God is still there. And his hand is still in the midst of it. God's still there. And it reminded me that faith is not just about faith in, in what is good. Faith is about faith in everything. The good and the bad. We have a tendency to, to have strong faith when things are good, but when things get bad, we tend to give up on God and we tend to say, God, you're not doing anything. You don't hear me. You don't care. You're distant. All of those things. Solomon says, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who pleases them, to pleases him. What pleases God? What pleases God? You, you could ask yourself this question all day long, and you could read a thousand different commentaries about a thousand different people who have a thousand different opinions. All I can tell you is what I have experienced and the kind of wisdom and knowledge that God has given me, the kind of joy that, is, that God has given me that surpasses any kind of understanding that exists within me. And it boils down to this simple thing, one simple word, and it's faith. It's faith. It's re I'm not just talking about a word. I'm talking about a real trust in God. I'm talking about a trust in God that, that surpasses just your superficial, yeah, I go to church and I believe in God kind of thing. I'm talking about a real kind of trust in God that when you're on your deathbed, you have joy. When you're sitting there beside somebody that is on their deathbed and they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's joy. When, when you look at your life and you look at the things that you've done in your life and you, you say, man, I am focused on Jesus Christ and he is number one in my life and, and he is what I'm going to proclaim to the day I die, even though I may have experienced some of the worst tragedies a person could imagine. That's real faith. That's real trust. That's when it goes beyond just words on a page, right? That's when it goes beyond just something you hear in a Sunday sermon. That's when it becomes real to you. You see, here's the thing, folks. I don't know that I would be up here telling you about how good God is if I hadn't experienced the tragedy that I had experienced I don't know that I would be up here telling you that God is amazing and I can see the hand of God in every single thing if I hadn't experienced the tragedy of losing my daughter to cancer. I don't know if I would be up here telling you about how good God is if she had gotten better and, and things, things, if she had been healed completely. I don't know that I would be up here proclaiming how good God is. I know that I probably would have said it, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with you somewhere maybe in your house or my house, and I'd be talking about, man, God is good, and he healed her. But I know this. She passed away. I don't have her anymore. 
But I can see through that. As a result of having experienced that in my life, I can see through that. I can see beyond what is just right there on the surface and the fact that she is, she's gone to the fact that I know where she is. I know that she's in the presence of a God who loves her more than I do. I know that I would give anything to have 15 more minutes with her. I would give anything for one more Disney trip with her. But you know what? I still recognize that God is so good. That God is so incredibly good. That yes, she died and yes, her life was taken. But man, her eternal life extends beyond what I can see with my own eyes. In those days when I, when I hated life, in those days where I wished I was dead, all of those things, man, they fade into the background because what I see now as a result of having experienced all that is just how incredibly good God is. My prayer for you this morning, seriously. Man, I don't want you to have to endure that. I don't want you to have to endure the loss of a child. I don't want you to have to endure the loss of somebody you love deeply. I don't want you to experience all that. I really don't. I pray that you will look at me and look at what I have experienced. And you will learn from that. And you will say, you know what? God is good. God is good. This is just a testimony of one person. There are endless people that can tell you that in the midst of how difficult things were, how bad things were, how awful things were, that God is still good. You may have people in your lives that, that, that are gone, or you may have people in your lives that, that are separated from you because of some broken relationship. You have to trust God in the good and the bad, and you have to trust Him in the fact that even though things are, 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 are apart for a little while, that eventually they'll be made right. But if your trust truly is in God and your faith really goes beyond just words on a page, that you'll see His goodness. You'll experience the reality of His goodness. I pray and I hope that it doesn't come to the, the point where you have to experience walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I hope that it doesn't come to that for you. But this is what I do pray. This is what I do pray. Listen, I pray that you will experience God's goodness in your worst condition. In your worst condition where you are so separated from God, from your sin, because you've got this great great wide divide between you and God because of your sin that you will look at the cross of Jesus you will look at the most destructive thing that could possibly have happened to a man and you will look at that and you will see just how good God is that you will look at your sinful condition that you're in and you'll recognize how God can rescue from that that even in your nasty filthy awful condition that God has chosen to rescue from that that he wants a relationship with you more than you want a relationship with him? That you will see that. You will see that. And, and I know you feel a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, but you will see that. And you'll see how good God is. Maybe you're just hurting. Listen, I know what that's like. I can't tell you the number of times that I just wanted to pray because I was hurting so bad. I didn't know what else to do. I just, I just wanted to talk to God. And there were times when I would fall down on my knees and I would talk to God and I couldn't pray. I, all I could do was cry. All I could do was open my mouth and, and I wanted words to come out, but they wouldn't come out. You know what I figured out? It's not what came out of my mouth. It's what came out of my heart. And God knew. 
and God was good. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. I'm truly overwhelmed by your goodness, Father. I have said all that I know to say. Your truth has been spoken, God. We've heard from you. God, I pray for the hurting person right now. My prayer is not that you'll take the pain away. God, my prayer is that you'll use the pain to draw them closer to you. My prayer is that they'll look at the pain and they'll see your hand in it. And God, they will love you more as a result of it. We have this tendency, God, to look at Satan and say that he's the reason for all of our pain and all of our hurt and all of these things. And we want to put the blame on, on Satan. But the reality is that nothing happens outside of your hand. It's a very churchy thing to say that Satan's a result of all of our pain. God, but the reality is that you allow it. You allow it. And, and Satan is just a pawn in your, your bigger scheme, your bigger plan. And your bigger plan is that we would have more faith in you. More faith in you, more trust in you, more belief that you are real in our lives. Even in the midst of our pain. So, Father, they're hurting people here. They just needed a word from you today. They were looking for an answer. Why? God, all we've, all we've shown is that you're good. You're good. I pray that they would experience your goodness today. I pray that they would see it and they would experience it. In Jesus' name, amen.